0: You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. Good morning and welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know me, my name is Rick Bowers and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And this morning, it is my joy and privilege to walk with you through some of what the scriptures teach us about what might be the easiest job in all of the world, and that's parenting. (laughs) Um, If you are uh, new to Redeemer, you might not know this, but typically we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. We've done that through the book of Mark for a really long time, but have taken a break on that, and now we are winding our way through Proverbs. Proverbs. And as we make our way along this way of wisdom, uh, we have uh, reached the topic of parenting this morning. And as every preacher knows who stands up here to bring the counsel of God's word to God's people, we're not just preaching to you, we're preaching to ourselves. And so this morning, nowhere is that more evident than in my own life because I too am a parent. I have... Uh, Two kids, I have a 21-year-old who is a junior in college, and then we have an 11-year-old little girl who is going on 20, and I need parenting advice from Scripture uh, just as much as you do and probably even more. If you're here this morning and you're not a parent, or maybe you've reached your parenting glory days, I would ask you, please don't check out. Please stay present with us. Please stay here with us because the reality is we need you. The saying that it takes a village to raise a child is not uh, in Scripture, but it is true. And those of us who parent, especially here at Redeemer, we parent in community. So to have people around us who love us and who love our children and who want to help us raise our children according to Scripture, we need you. We need you alongside us. So please stay tuned in with us this morning. Well, since all good stories start with when I was a boy, uh, I'm going to start there today. Uh, When I was a boy, my parents would get the newspaper, the daily newspaper, the fold-out, read-it newspaper. And that didn't matter to me too often unless it was Sunday. Because on Sunday, uh, that meant that the newspaper came with the Sunday comics. And those Sunday comics were in full color. And then that meant that I could read my most favorite comic strip about this adventurous and mischievous and creative little boy uh, named Calvin and his stuffed tiger named Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes was a favorite comic of mine, still a favorite in our family, loved to read it. But one of the reasons as I I got older that I realized Calvin and Hobbes was so brilliant was because it gave us unique insight into the life of this mischievous little boy, but it also gave us insight into the life of his parents. And there's one particular set of strips, comic strips, that comes to mind about Calvin and Hobbes where they return home from being away and they find that their house has been burglarized. So their house has been broken into and some things have been taken, and it's really disrupted the security and sort of the harmony that existed in the home. And there's a lot of stress going on for Calvin and for his parents. And in one particular strip, Calvin's mom and dad are laying in bed, and dad has this conversation with mom. And here's what he says. <clears throat> he says, it's funny. When I was a kid, I thought grown-ups never worried about anything. I trusted my parents to take care of everything, and it never occurred to me they might not know how. I figured that once you grew up, you automatically knew what to do in any given scenario. He finishes with this. He says, I don't think I'd have been in such a hurry to reach adulthood if I'd have known the whole thing was going to be (laughs) ad-libbed. Parents, we laugh at that, but I think most of us feel the reality of that. Most of us parent in a way that just seems ad-libbed. We parent with whatever tools we've been given. That's how we try to guide our children and how to love our children. And it might feel that that's how we need to parent or that that's how we do parent, but the reality is that for us as Christian parents, we actually do have something that guides us in our parenting. God's word, God guides us through his word in how we parent our kids. And following his instruction will give us the best chances we have to help our children to flourish. Because I think at the end of the day, that's really what we desire for our children is that they flourish. If you join me in prayer, we'll jump into Scripture and we'll see what Proverbs says about helping our children flourish. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Uh, Father, it is profitable for us. We can uh, find in it all we need um, for. The pursuit of life and godliness, it it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us. Um, It illuminates our hearts and minds to you, and I just ask that you would do that this morning. That as we walk through your word, you would um, let your spirit just work on the areas of our heart that need to be convicted. Work on the areas of our heart that need to be encouraged, and in all things, guide us. Jesus, would you be our shepherd? Um, Holy Spirit, would you remain with us. We love you and trust you. Amen. When we come to the book of Proverbs, we could really say that the entire book is about parenting. In the very first chapter of Proverbs, Solomon will say, hear your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. The book of Proverbs is really a passing of wisdom from one generation to the next. And the reader, the recipient of Proverbs, would have received this with an Israelite worldview, with knowing the God of Israel, the God of the Bible as their God, and knowing their position as God's covenant people. So we receive it the same way this morning, as Christian parents. And it's this everyday contextual wisdom that you can use in different situations and in different ways for when your daughter has that first betrayal of a friend or for when your son doesn't quite make the grades or make the team that he wants to make. And I think what we find in Proverbs is that it's aimed as much at changing our hearts as it is instructing us on how to parent our children. We can often come to it wanting five ways to raise perfect kids, but God says, through his word. Hey, take a look at yourself first. In his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, Pastor Ted Tripp points this out. He says, The person your child becomes is a product of two things. The first is his life experience, and the second is how he interacts with that experience. The wisdom in Proverbs helps us teach our children how to interact with their life experiences. And we're going to pull some of those threads of wisdom out this morning. Proverbs won't give us perfect kids. But what it will give us, I think, is five God-honoring ways to trust God with our children. That's what we're going to walk through today. And the first of those... We'll find this morning in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. You're welcome to turn there with me in your Bibles. It will also be on the screen behind me. That particular verse says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The very first God-honoring way to trust the Lord with our children is to fear God. A few weeks ago, Josh preached a wonderful sermon where he touched on this topic. I'm not going to re-preach it, but I do encourage you to go listen to it. Josh helped us understand that to begin there, to begin with the fear of the Lord, is to have a right understanding of who God is and a right understanding of who we are. And this fear of God holds true in our parenting. Because we need to understand rightly who God is and then rightly understand who we are. And it's only then that we can rightly understand who our children are. Many of us as parents see our identity as being the owners of our children. After all, we're the ones who have to go and buy all the boxes of goldfish or Cheez-Its or whatever it is that we supply our children with on a daily basis. We provide for our kids We do all kinds of things for them. By the sweat and blood of our brow, we care for our children. So it's really easy to slide into this idea of ownership of our children. But the psalmist says that children are a heritage from the Lord. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, every rock, every tree, every blade of grass, every mountain, every river, every Horse, every creature, every living, breathing human being, including our children, are the Lord's, belong to the Lord. And when we see ourselves as owners of our children, we've missed reality. God is the owner of our children. Ownership parenting means I raise my child according to my desires, the desires of the owner. So when I push my child towards something that I want them to do, an activity that I want them to do, or when I heap shame upon my child because she's embarrassed me, or when I choose the college that my child's going to attend, this is ownership parenting. And ownership parenting tends to always be concerned about how my child reflects on me because I am the owner of my child and I'm raising them according to my ownership, and this is not a proper fearing of God and who he is. Look at our text, look at our scripture text again. It says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. If we unplug that phrase, fear of the Lord, we could say it this way. In rightly knowing who God is, and in rightly knowing who I am, and in rightly knowing who my children are, I have strong confidence. To fear God as a parent is not to see ourselves as owner, but as steward. This isn't first my child. This is first God's child. She belongs to him long before she belongs to me. I'm gonna love her, I'm gonna give to her, I'm gonna sacrifice for her, I'm gonna care for her, I'm gonna do all of these things. But she firstly belongs to the Lord. A steward is someone who cares for something that's been put in their possession, but is not ultimately theirs. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including our children. So as steward, I will be up at 2 a.m. to clean up the vomit and to tuck them back into bed and to give them a kiss. As steward, I will call to check in on them when they get behind the wheel of the car and drive to their first high school football game. As steward, I will love my child with all the love I can because they are a gift and heritage from the Lord, but I will not be shaping them according to my ownership, but according to the ownership of the father to whom they truly belong. And this proper understanding of fearing God, look at the text one more time, will make both me and the God who I love a refuge for my child. Stewardship parenting creates an environment where our child can freely grow into who God has made them and gifted them to actually be. Ownership parenting creates a demanding owner who tries to bend the will of their subject, the child, according to their ownership. And if we haven't already learned it, ownership parenting does not create a refuge for our child. And it certainly doesn't point to the God of refuge. <clears throat> Fearing God in our parenting means that we function as stewards. And then, we guide our child along a certain way. That leads us to the second way we trust God with our children. Look at Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, He will not depart from it. The second way we trust God with our children is to follow Jesus. So here's the interesting thing about this verse. It's really wide open. What I mean is that we could take this verse, pull it out of Scripture, we could put it in another book and let you read it. You would probably say that this is generally true. The way in which we raise a child tends to be the way they go when they get older. Now that trajectory can change, but it often doesn't. The way a child is taught when they're young tends to be the way they stay on as they grow. So if your child is learning through your behavior <clears throat> to yell and curse and hit things when they get angry, then it's likely this is a path they will stay on and they will mirror that behavior. We might ask ourselves this morning, what is the way in which I'm training my child to go? Now, while this proverb is general wisdom... As Christians, we know that there is a way that our child should go that is better than any other way. That's better than wealth or better than success or better than good grades or better than college sports or better than the American dream. A way that leads to flourishing and to life in its fullest. And that way is following Jesus Christ. If we go back to fearing God... Then our identity is built upon the very truth that God has come near to us in Christ. And it's by following his way that we now live. And as parents, this means we create a certain culture in our home. Where everything we say and everything we do and every decision we make is filtered through the reality that we have been saved and made new through the blood of Jesus Christ. We create a gospel culture in our home. And this starts with you. And it starts with me. Following Jesus starts with us, the parents. Again, we want tips on parenting, but the scriptures demand we look at ourselves as we lead the way. Are we following Christ in our own lives? Because if you don't already realize that your children are absorbing everything that you do, and if you're teaching scripture in your home and you're trying to lean on biblical principles in your home, but the words coming out of your mouth and the actions coming out of your life are opposite that, then you're going to teach a way to your child, but it's not going to be the way of following Christ. We teach our children to follow Jesus more in the thousands of small decisions we make throughout the day than we ever do in a big epic Bible study that we can sit them down for. What way are we teaching our children when we've made a commitment to something, but then that moment arrives and we stayed up too late or we're just tired and we don't want to go. And so we grab the phone and we text and we say, "Ah, I'm sick and we're not really sick. It's a little thing, it's a tiny thing, but the reality is we're training our children in a way through those actions. Teach theology to your children, yes. Have them memorize scripture, yes. But if we're not helping them understand how the saving grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ helps them to be faithful or helps them to have forgiveness for their sibling when they've been in a fight, or helps them choose who they're going to marry as they grow up, then our Bible study and our theology and our scripture memorization really aren't helping. Train them in the way of Christ, nurture them in it, take the time to explain it to them, help them see it, and it is a way that they are not likely to depart from, and then give them grace after grace after grace after grace when they can't follow it. Just like we've been given grace. We are far more like our children than we are different from them. And in one breath we will praise the patient and forgiving mercy of God with us and we will crush our children with our impatience and lack of grace and lack of forgiveness with them. They need the grace of the gospel just as much as we do And we have the privilege to point them to it over and over and over again. Do they know that they are sinners saved by faith in Jesus Christ? Do they know they can run to God even when they sin and climb up on his lap and confess that to him? Do they know that he's still going to love them, that he's still going to like them? Do they know that he wants them to pursue his son through his spirit, Teach them these things. Train them in these things. Walk with them in these things. And then do it again and again and again. Help them learn it just like we're learning it. Our children need Jesus. They need to follow him just like we're trying to do. And here's a way we can help them do that. Brings us to our third point this morning. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The third way we trust God with our children is to get wisdom. And where does wisdom come from? Solomon gives us the answer here wisdom comes from the Lord. This is a reality all throughout your Bible. James says it, Paul writes about it repeatedly. When Peter writes his letter, he says, Hey, this is why Paul's so smart, it's because God's given him wisdom. There's an endless supply of worthless information coming to us at such a high rate in our world right now. It dresses itself up really pretty in ways that look like wisdom, and it makes its way into our life. And it comes across in social media, in the classroom, on podcasts. It comes through the lips of the people around us. It shouts to us from academia. It comes to us from people who have no subject matter authority at all. It sits in the highest places of our world. And it seduces us, sometimes because it's easy. And sometimes because we can get it really quickly. But it's not wisdom. It's foolishness. And it's folly. And none of this is new. Solomon says these exact things in Proverbs 9. He says, The foolishness of the world cries out, and people make their way to it, thinking that it's life, only to find that it's actually death. Proverbs has a lesson for us. I'd encourage you to read through Proverbs on your own and pay particular attention to how Solomon addresses his son. More than teaching his son to discern foolish ways from wise ones, He's often teaching him to discern foolish speakers from wise ones. Theologian Elizabeth Hewler puts it this way. She says, Instead of learning to sort out wisdom from foolish speech, the wisdom student learns learns to sort out wise from foolish speakers. The issue then is not which words are reliable, but whose words are reliable. So whose words are we pointing our children to for wisdom? Because wisdom says, or scripture says, wisdom is from the Lord. And it's really, really easy for us to pursue wisdom in other places because it's easy. The foolish pursuits of the world aren't hard they tend to be the easiest. They're the direction of the masses, they're the opinions rolling across your Twitter feed or coming in and the music and movies and things like that that we uh, allow in and watch, but don't hear me, don't overprotect or overshelter your child. But what we do need to do is what the scriptures call us to is, to, is this effort to get wisdom. Wisdom requires effort. In Proverbs 2, Solomon says, make your ear attentive, incline your heart, call out, raise up, raise your voice for insight, seek it, search for it, get it, get wisdom. We have to make an effort to get wisdom. It's not just gonna come sailing across our little screen. Carl Truman is a theologian and historian, and he authored a book. Here's the title, it's really long. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. I do recommend this book, by the way. In his book, Truman explores the historical cultural pathway that we've wandered on for a number of years to get to where we are today. Where essentially we say, whatever I think I am, therefore I am. You can think of this uh, most commonly in gender issues today. Whatever gender I think I am, therefore that's what I am. In a recent interview, Truman was asked this by Modern Reformation magazine. Do you have any advice for Christians regarding how they might combat in themselves, families, and churches these elements of the modern self? Here was Truman's response. Catechesis. Teach your kids well. Attend church where your family will sit under the word preached and receive the sacraments. Be a loving community as a church. Redeemer, the voices of folly and of sin, they shout so loudly to us, but they're deafening to our children. And if we're not building a biblical foundation for our kids, then something else is building a different foundation. Grab your Bible. Get up early. Get your kids up early. Read a chapter a day with them. When you tuck them into bed, read a couple of chapters from the book of John. If you don't understand something when you're reading it, look it up with them. Ask one of your pastors or elders here for a resource. Go to our resource wall or down the little hallway back there and look for resources. But we have to take Solomon's advice here. Be attentive, incline your heart, raise up your voice, seek it, get wisdom. And here's why. Solomon reminds us that wisdom is like honey to our souls. And if we find it, we have a future. And Paul writes the church in Colossae, and he says this. He says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The fullness of the wisdom of God is made known in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we point our children to get wisdom, we're pointing them to Jesus Christ. And we're telling them that something greater than Solomon, someone wiser than Solomon has come. You say, this all sounds great, this sounds wonderful, but Rick, you don't know my child. You don't know that I can't even get them to sit down and eat a meal at the dinner table, let alone sit down to hear us talk about the Bible to them. I'm glad you brought that up because it leads us into another way that we trust God with our children. Look with me at Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The fourth way we trust God with our children is to discipline rightly. Now, the topic of discipline runs big and bold through the entire book of Proverbs. And that's probably because Solomon knows what we know. That our children are beautiful, and they are sweet, and they are wonderful, but they are also wicked little sinners. (laughs) All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including our kids. But what we often run to when we think of discipline is how we might punish the sin out of our child. But that is not the picture we see in the Bible of discipline. The word that Scripture repeatedly uses for discipline roots itself in this idea of training, warning, rebuke, chastening, correction, all which align with somebody who is a disciple, somebody who's being taught or trained. And in the biblical idea of discipleship, no one is punishing the sin out of them. Solomon talks a lot about discipline, and the very laws of God have extremely serious consequences for children who disrespect their parents. There's no doubt that the God of the Bible takes discipline seriously. But for us, there tend to be two mistakes we can make when we think about discipline with our children. Our text says that discipline is rooted in love. It says, he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So this is a loving rod of correction. The first mistake some of us make is that we parent not with a loving rod of correction, but with a punishing rod of anger. We make discipline and punishment synonymous A rod of anger is swung with total disregard for the soul of our child. We might shame our child, or we might call them names. We might uh, run to physical punishment for the smallest offenses. None of this is rooted in love. We might make them feel small or worthless. This is empty punishment. And it's usually a result of our own sin, or the fact that we feel inconvenienced, or the fact that we feel out of control. Or we might swing this rod of anger in a different way. We might be passive aggressive with our children. We may use guilt as a parenting technique. Or we may use the silent treatment to try to emotionally manipulate our child into some sort of behavior. This is still the rod of anger. It's just used in a passive aggressive way with our child and this is not how we discipline rightly. But on the other side, We may not pick up the rod of love at all, and we might just be letting our children wander right into death and folly. Solomon says this is like hating our children. We may view discipline so arbitrarily that it becomes worthless, and we're far too lazy to be diligent at it. We just let the rod of love lay on the ground, and instead, we let our children rule us, and everyone around us. We let them dictate the function and flow of our family because if they don't, they're going to threaten us with their anger and with their unhappiness and with their discontent. And we're going to feel threatened and we have to obey what they want us to do. You know, technically, that's terrorism. (laughs) Some of us are letting our children terrorize us and the people around us because we are not diligently disciplining them, as Solomon calls us to. This happens as a result of our laziness and discipline and it allows our children to grow in their folly and in their sin. Some of the ways we do this, by not aligning mom and dad with how we engage in discipline, by being inconsistent in a discipline with our child, by trying to psychoanalyze every single behavior of our child instead of sometimes just telling them no, as a parent telling them no, or simply by checking out. By keeping our eyes on the game, or scrolling on social media, or shopping on Amazon, because we really don't feel like parenting right now anyway. Neither disciplining out of anger, or letting discipline be absent, is disciplining rightly, because neither is forming a disciple of Jesus. When we view the discipline of our children as disciple forming, that helps us move towards the right motivation. The right motivation for discipline is right love. Solomon says in Proverbs 3 that God disciplines us in love, and he has delight in us even when he's disciplining us. So we have delight in our children even when we're disciplining them. The writer of Hebrews will build off that same proverb to remind us that sometimes discipline is painful. Some of our children need a look to break their heart, And to help them go in the right way, others need more. But it's all done in love. In Revelation 3, Jesus tells the church that he disciplines those who he loves. A shaping towards Christ-likeness in love is the right motivation for discipline. Not anger and not apathy. And hear me, a love that enters in and comes near to our child, just as Christ has done to us, just as God has done to us, that is right discipline, being close to our child, not a love that's angry, and not a love that's distant and far off. And lastly, and we'll close here today, the final way that we trust God with our children is to have hope. Look with me at Proverbs 23, verse 18. Solomon's addressing his son here. And he says, Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Parents, if we're not parenting our children in light of their future to come with Jesus, then this broken world is all that they're going to have. And when they're let down, and when they're crushed by it, All they can turn to will be broken cisterns and empty wells. We have a hope to point our children towards. They are sojourners in a world that is not their own, but they do have an eternal home. And many times we as parents, we really want our children to be happy. And that's not a bad thing. But what we sometimes do is point them to right now to find that happiness. To things or to experiences or to moments. And there are definitely things we should point them to to find joy in. But that should not be their ultimate source of joy. We want to paint for them sometimes that their joy is in today, but it is not. Their ultimate joy is in the future. And the more they can realize that and understand that, the better suited they'll be able to to handle the thorns and thistles that are going to come to them in existence here and now. The more able they are to locate themselves in the course of eternity and find their joy in the future, the less likely they'll be to pursue happiness right now at all costs, which is what the world screams to them. The more they are able to rest in a future hope and joy in a new Jerusalem, the less likely they'll be to just toss out a relationship when it doesn't bring them pleasure. And this hope for the future is something you can really very easily build into your everyday parent, talk about it, remind your kids of it. Uh, In our family, we we learned this somewhere, we didn't come up with this, but we spend a lot of time outdoors. And so inevitably we'll see this something really cool in nature, a scene, a mountain, a lake, or um, some kind of really cool animal. And somebody in our family will say, man, that is just really beautiful. And here's how my wife and I try to respond. To remind ourselves and our kids, we've tried to respond by saying, that is really, you're right, that is really, really beautiful. But it's gonna be so much more beautiful when Jesus comes back. So there are these subtle reminders we can give our kids all the time of their future hope to come, to help sustain them and to help carry them when things are hard. Our children need to have hope in their future as covenant children of God, and we have the privilege to point them to that. <clears throat> but sometimes we're the ones who need hope. We have a hope to give, and we have a hope to remember. You can write down every word I said, you can listen to every sermon, every podcast you can read every article you can go to every seminar you can get every new book that comes out on parenting you can write it all down you can memorize it you can live it you can be the most perfect parent who has ever walked the face of the earth and one day you might pick up your phone and hear dad i don't really want to have anything to do with god anymore i'm done with this I'm finished. Or you might hear, hey mom, I've been talking to these friends and we're deconstructing our faith. And I just realized that this Jesus stuff is not really for me anymore. Or you may be on the phone with your grown child and hear them screaming at their spouse or weeping over the loss of a child. Or you may sit across the table one day from your daughter and through teenage tears she tells you, hey mom, I'm pregnant. Christian parent, what are you gonna do? What will you do in that moment? You'll have hope. You'll love that child with all you are and you will remember that we serve a God who has a pattern of saving the children of his children. We serve a God who brings dead things back to life. We serve a God who restores things that are shattered and things that are broken. We serve a God who works all things for the good of those who love him. We serve a God who does not require a theology degree or a reciting of the shorter catechism or perfect parenting for salvation. We serve a God who can save a sinner on a tree when he says, remember me, Jesus. We are never, ever, ever without hope. And all these things we do, everything we do for our child is just piling up kindling wood around their lives. And then we pray fervently that God will light that fire inside them for him. And so Solomon's wisdom to you today, parent, to us, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In just a moment, we're gonna respond to God's word like we always do. We're gonna respond by taking communion together. The very action of sharing in this communion meal is an action of celebration for us as Christians. God has provided so much for us in Christ, and this is us coming to receive that provision, to receive Christ's body and blood through the bread and through the cup. And it communicates so much to our hearts and so much to our minds. And maybe the Holy Spirit is working on your heart and in your mind this morning about certain things. I'd ask you to do one thing for me. As you come this morning, understand that communion is the, the communion meal is not one of sorrow. It's one of joy. It's one of celebration. As one body, we are sharing together in Jesus. And it is a beautiful and exciting moment. But a better day is coming. A better meal is coming. We have a future hope. And we can celebrate that. Let me pray for us. We'll go to communion. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have not been left to ourselves to figure this whole thing out. Thank you that you guide us by your spirit, through your word, by the example of your son. You guide us in all ways. Thank you that you are near to us by your spirit. Thank you that you sustain us by your spirit, and by your word. Just ask that you would let us this morning just be overwhelmed with peace and joy and acceptance because of what Jesus has done for us by taking our sin. We don't have to be perfect. We can rest in you just as our children can rest in you. We can rest just like a child. In the arms of the father who loves us and knows every single small detail about us and who likes us remind our hearts and minds of that this morning father we love you and we trust you thanks for listening if you are looking for info find our website at redeemerrr.org or download the redeemer round rock app from the android or ios app store